So today was uh, uh, today was the day that the captive aliens at Area 51 have have been waiting for and pining for the the Storm Area 51 event, which I'm sure you heard about. The raid on Area 51, organized on Facebook, was uh, kicked off today, or su- was supposed to kick off today, and uh, shockingly, nobody stormed anything. They're just hanging out in the desert, having uh, you know, drinking beer, listening to music. This this mission, this righteous mission to rescue the captive aliens has turned into a festival. How does that happen? You're organizing for a raid. It's a raid that turns into a festival. Imagine the disappointment. Imagine being an alien uh, prisoner at Area 51, and you hear about this raid. You hear about it from the the scuttlebutt from from the other prisoners. Maybe maybe you heard about it from Rorg and Snorg. At the in the in the in the prisoner in the prison cafeteria at Area 51, and and now you feel like you're finally going to be free again. The, the the day you've been waiting for, you've been captive all this time. You start dreaming of being home on your planet. You start excitedly planning, you know, your revenge invasion back on Earth to enslave and kill mankind for what they did to you. Uh, uh, and you're just thinking about, you know, if, if we're finally returning home to uh, to Neptune, and and you're smiling again for the first time in years. And then the day arrives. And, 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 you know, you, you, you look out from your cell and, and all, you're expecting an army of people. And all you see are a ragtag bunch of scrawny white boys standing around in the desert, tweeting memes and laughing. And you realize it was all a joke. It was all a joke. Your freedom is a joke to these people. And then the Area 51 scientist comes and says, it's time. And they cart you away to the hospital ward to harvest your organs while you're still alive. And the last thing you see is your own spleen being removed from your body. That took a really dark turn at the end there, so I apologize for that. Things got way more serious at the end than they needed to be. Uh, but the point is that the, the Area 51 raid was uh, uh, sadly a huge, huge disappointment. Um, okay, well, a lot to discuss today uh, but besides the Area 51 raid that, uh, that never was. Before we get to any of that, a quick word at the top from ExpressVPN. You know, wouldn't it be nice if search engines and social media sites were were unbiased platforms that didn't choose a side politically, respected your privacy, all that stuff? Well, that's a nice that's a nice fantasy. That's a nice utopian world that we can dream about. But that ain't never going to happen. All right. That, by the way, that's my own phrase. That's not in the copy. They would don't don't blame ExpressVPN that I just used the phrase "ain't never going to happen." These big tech companies um, that push their political agendas, restrict the free speech rights of conservatives, are are the very same corporations that we are, at the same time, trusting to handle our personal data online. I don't want them using my web history, uh, my email metadata. Uh, I don't want them using my information against me, or I don't I don't want any of that. That's why I use ExpressVPN every time I go online. Big tech companies. Uh, they can match your internet activity to your identity or location using your public IP address. They can find out so much about you. Your privacy is just gone. When I use ExpressVPN, these tech companies can't see my IP address at all. Um, my identity is masked and anonymized by a, a secure VPN server. Plus, ExpressVPN has the added benefit of encrypting 100% of your data to keep you safe from hackers and internet bad guys. Um Does it all sound kind of complicated? Maybe it does. Well, it's not, I promise. At least not on your end. As far as you're concerned, just takes a minute to set up, tap one button. Now, ExpressVPN on their end, there's a lot of complicated stuff going on to make sure that you're you're safe and you're secure. But as far as you're concerned, 
Real simple, real easy. So if you're like me and you believe your internet, internet, your internet data belongs to you and not the tech elites, then ExpressVPN is the answer. Protect your online activity today. Find out how you can get um, three months free at expressvpn.com slash Walsh. That's expressvpn.com slash Walsh for three months free with one year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash Walsh to learn more. Okay, well, there's something else going on today aside from the Area 51 raid turned festival, and that is a climate strike. Yes, there's a climate strike. We are going on strike against the climate. We are boycotting the climate. We are saying to the climate, you stop it, climate. You stop being so hot. I personally, I'm, I'm going, I am not going to associate with the climate. I am not going to use the climate. I am not going to be in the climate until the temperature drops by 20 degrees. That is my solemn oath. Uh, or maybe that's not exactly how it works. I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a climate strike. Uh, I, I think a, a, what, it, what mainly appar- it apparently involves is um, uh, a bunch of kids skipping school. That's what the climate strike is. Kids are skipping school today. They're walking out of class. They're, they're letting their voice be heard. I love it when we have protests like this because kids all across the country, and, you know, it seems like every year there's a, there's a reason for some sort of school walkout or whatever. Um, and, and, and you've got this thing where all kids all across the country, across the world, they're ditching class. Uh, they're not going to school. And then everyone says, wow, the kids must really care about this issue. These kids are really involved. Yeah, maybe, or maybe they just hate school and they're looking for any reason to walk out. I, I can remember, when I was in school, I can remember remember a couple of occasions when we did a school walkout. I have no idea what the issue was. I don't think I knew at the time. I, I didn't didn't matter to me. I just knew people were walking out for some reason. It didn't make no difference to me. Uh, I was on board, at least for that period of time. For that day, I was marching alongside those people for whatever reason to whatever effect. Didn't matter to me. The point is, the, the headline for me is, I get out of school. And I think that's the way it is for most kids. Um, but on the, on the sort of darker side of things, the fact is that a lot of people, kids included and adults, um, are being sucked into what is essentially now, uh, a doomsday cult. Now, just to give you an example, let me read a very disturbing, uh, see if I can find it, a very disturbing thread from a guy named Alex McKinnon, who's a writer out of Sydney, um, uh, not not a grade school student, as far as I know. But let me read this thread that he put up this morning. Um, verified account, by the way, on Twitter. He's got the blue check marks. So you know, he's an important guy. And here's what he said. This is not a joke. This is what he had to say. He said, since the federal election, I've been overwhelmed by feelings of dread, grief, and terror of what a heating planet will mean for my life, the ones I love, and our collective future. Hashtag climate strike. He goes on. For months, getting out of bed has been atrociously difficult. Any thought of the future's terrifying implications and what they will mean for the later years of my life has sent me spiraling. I quit a good job. I took months off work. I started on medication, all of which has helped, but none of which has solved the cause of the existential horror I feel when I look the future in the face. I have bawled my eyes out and screamed into pillows and felt a panic so intense it seemed impossible it could be contained in a small human frame. I can't say that the climate strikes have made those feelings go away. We are always signed up for too much climate atrocity and are too likely to cause more for a single protest to make the situation entirely better. But to see tens of thousands of people all grappling with the same trauma and hurt and gut-wrenching fear, the single big, biggest protest I've ever seen in my life made my own little battle a little bit easier for a while. 
We are all headed for a future demonstrably worse than the present in ways we cannot predict. The world will be brutal and horrific and beyond endurance. But I will help you through it in a, any way that I can. I hope you'll help me too. This has to be. Now, now that I'm reading it all the way through, this guy can't be serious. Uh, I'm looking at his profile. I, I think he is serious. I, yeah, I think he's serious. And I can't even... I mean, I can't even laugh about it. I can sort of laugh about it, but I, but I can't fully laugh about it because this is... I, I mean... People, this is this is a doomsday cult. This is this is like this. That's not an exaggeration at this point. There are people now. To some of us, to those of us who are a little bit more balanced, we can laugh this off. But there are people. I guess when you when you've got prominent individuals like AOC and pretty much any Democrat and liberals across the world and the country. When they're insisting and saying over and over again, the world's going, you know, coming to an end. It's going to end in 12 years, and and, and you know, this, all these coastal cities are going to be underwater. We're going to drown. It's like there are people who hear this stuff and they really take it seriously. Um, now, think about this: the the walkouts today, uh, then things like the climate confessions on nbc.com which we talked about yesterday gave you a chance to anonymously confess your sins against the climate and then there was the confessions to actual plants at a liberal seminary that we the seminary that we talked about the day before yesterday and on and on and on it's very clear that you know i i, I call it a doomsday cult well a cult is another word for a religion Cult is, you know, religions are technically cults. And I say that as a, someone who's a member of religion myself. That's the word cult has taken on this, this pejorative meaning. But um, in a broader sense, you know, in a broader, less pejorative way, you know, religions and cults are, kind of, are, are synonymous, synonymous. So you could call it a doomsday religion, a doomsday environmentalist religion. And that's, that really is what it is. And that's, that's not a joke. It is literally a religion. It has all of the hallmarks now of a religion. It has its core ideological tenets. It has its apocalyptic vision. It has its rules and codes of conduct. It has tithings and offerings and sacrifices. It has a call to repentance. It has its high priests and priestesses, AOC being one of them. Uh, It has its prophets, Al Gore. It has its child saviors, Thunberg. Um... It, it, in every sense, this this is a religion. It's got everything that a religion has. America has found its religion, and this is it. This, I think, speaks to a certain truth, which is that apparently, it would seem, religion actually is a basic need that we have as human beings. We can't escape it, even when we try. The West, the West is by far the least religious civilization in the history of the world. But only at first glance, um, and only if you're if you're believing, if you are looking at the the polls and the surveys and saying how how many people are unaffiliated with any religion. Well, there are more unaffiliated people uh, today than there have been at any other point, percentage wise. But if you look a little bit closer, 
And you don't even have to look that close. You see that the religious instinct has just manifested itself in a slightly different way. It's not, they're not really unaffiliated. They're just affiliated now with a different religion and one that we don't call a religion, even though it is. Now, it would seem that there is a, a fundamental need here. And if you're an atheist, you can claim that the fundamental need for religion the instinct, whatever you want to call it. You could say that it's evolutionary, it's it's psychological, um, whatever. Uh, Not proof of a God. That could be your claim. If you're a theist, you say that the fundamental need speaks to an innate sense of, uh, uh, an innate knowledge of, an innate longing for the divine. I'm not going to get into that debate, though you know where I stand on it, but that's, that's not really my point here. My point is simply that The need is clearly there for religion, and environmentalism fills that need for a lot of people. And it's not a coincidence that as we go on, it it begins to more and more resemble religion, and it takes on more and more of the characteristics of religion. This repentance stuff, that we see two of these things in the same week, we're now, now this confessional aspect of it is... uh, to me, that was kind of like the last piece that we needed to really call it a religion. And now we've got it. And okay, so it's it's a religion. You could just classify it. You've got Christianity, Judaism, Islam, you know, Hinduism, environmentalism, right? In the list of, of religions. All right. Um, I've been meaning to mention this uh, for a few days. A restaurant in Baltimore is being accused of racism. And this is going to shock you. The reasons are frivolous and stupid. If you can believe it, a a, a frivolous claim of racism. That doesn't sound like the culture I know. It doesn't sound like our culture. So reading now from the Daily Wire says, um, a soon-to-be-opened restaurant in Baltimore is being called racist because it posted a sign with one specific message. The restaurant has a dress code. Um... The Chop Tank, which alerted prospective customers that it will be opening soon on its website, posted a dress code listing some items that would be unacceptable to wear on its premises, including excessively baggy clothing, offensive vulgar or inappropriate attire, athletic attire, jerseys, brimless headgear, backwards or sideways hats, work and construction boots, sunglasses after dark. Um, On Twitter, uh, one Twitter user described themselves as a photojournalist tweeted, Dress-coded sign at the new Chop Tank restaurant in Fells, followed by another tweet. Uh, and then from there, the controversy starts. Uh, one Twitter user said, this is racist as hell. I will never enter your restaurant and will actively warn others away from it. Have a great day. Um, someone else said, y'all could have saved yourself some time at the Chop Tank and just posed a no black people sign. A writer from Elle magazine tweeted that the restaurant had a blatantly discriminatory dress code. And the Washington Post is writing about it, on and on and on. Um, people are calling it racist. Uh, this this is one of those cases um, where the people calling it racist, and this happens a lot, where the people who call something racist have revealed themselves to be racist. Because... If you read that list and you think, oh, that's going to disqualify all black people, how is that not racist? 
Are are you just is, is that not engaging in in uh, in insulting stereotypes? No, the, the, this is a dress code that is put forward for everybody, and there's a logical reason for a lot of it. Like, for instance, um, one of the reasons why establishments don't like really baggy clothing, especially in the city, is because you can hide stuff in it, like a gun, for instance. Um, they don't want vulgar attire. Where, well, that's that most most places don't want that because that offends other customers. And you don't want to offend paying customers. Uh, don't wear athletic attire. Well, again, that's that's just if if you're trying to be a slightly nicer kind of restaurant, maybe one step up from Burger King or Subway, then you don't want people walking in in, in basketball shorts. Um, don't wear sunglasses after dark. Again, this is just this, and that's that's another thing. There are a lot of places. If you go into a bank, it's going to say, "Don't wear sunglasses and hats in the bank." Is it, is it discriminatory? No, they're just because you might be trying to rob the place. Um, so to look at that list and say that it's discriminates against that to me seems extremely bigoted and racist. I think that a a dress code like that seems to me to be completely reasonable, no matter what your race happens to be. Anyone of any race is perfectly capable of complying with that dress code. And uh, and it should really be as simple as that. All right. Uh, not to go too rapid fire here, but I've also been I've also been wanting to talk about something else, and I can't let the week uh, end without without bringing this up. And I'm sorry that I have to talk about. It. Well, I don't really have to talk about it, but I will anyway. The New York Times a few days ago ran a story, and. Okay, well, here's the headline of the story, all right? The headline is, well, it's not a story. It's a it's an op-ed. Women poop at work. Get over it. That's that's real. That's that's the headline. Um, in fact, here's the here's the screenshot of the of the headline there. So just so you can see, this was published in the New York Times. And it's an article all about, well, you can tell what it's about. Uh, it's kind of self-explanatory. And this is, this is something I talk about a lot. Um, not women pooping, but, but, uh, but, but rather feminists finding the weirdest ways to be persecuted. Just the weirdest. Feminists who are so desperate to be victims and so desperate to be persecuted that they, they go searching for it and they find it in the weirdest places. Um, and they find the weirdest claims about discrimination that they face. Like, whoever told women that they can't go number two at work, is that even a thing? In my 33 years of life, I've never heard anyone say that, or I just is I don't think that's a thing. Are are there jobs where they say, where like you walk into the bathroom and there's a there is a gendered code telling you what you're allowed to do in the bathroom? Like men can go number one and two, women can only go number one. Is is that a thing? Are there are there places? Are there jobs that have rules like that? If so, I, I will say I'm I'm totally against it. I, I I I have no problem. I will I will march with the feminists in that case and say no, men and women uh, should be allowed to you know use the toilet at at, at work. Uh, but I don't think that's a thing. The real story here is the picture accompanying this article. This to me is is utterly mysterious. But I want to show you this picture. This is the picture that, that went along with the headline. 
And as you can see there, okay, what, it, it just makes me, it really makes me wonder, the, the woman who wrote this article, she obviously has had some very specific experiences at her job, which I don't know if she works at the New York Times or if this was, or what, um, uh, but uh, there are weird things happening in her sp- bathroom at her work that I don't think happen at other places. So look, okay, you've got a woman with her shoes off in the bathroom and her bare feet on the floor. And then you've got, that appears to be, and I don't, you know, I, I, I don't want to be transphobic, but that appears to be a man in that one. I mean, it's, it's someone with pants, they're facing in the other direction. Appears to be a man. And then you've got two women in the stall next to it. What in the world is happening in this bathroom? What is this even supposed to be? So the real headline of the story is very weird stuff happening in New York Times bathroom. If you go to New York Times, do not use their bathroom under any circumstances. Apparently, if you're a woman, you're not allowed to. Or, or I guess you can, but you, maybe they, they have to do two in a... Is that... Okay, maybe that's the issue. Maybe at the New York Times, um, to save space, they make women share stalls, and that's why they're not allowed to... Anyway, I don't want to get too graphic with it, but this is uh, just completely bizarre and strange. All right. Um, We'll go to emails, mattwalshow at gmail.com, mattwalshow at gmail.com. This is from Kevin says, hey, Matt, I read your article on the Daily Wire about Prime Minister Justin Trudeau wearing blackface and how we should apply the left standards to them. I know that this is something that a lot of conservatives struggle with. Their insistence um, that... lost my place, that conservatives should not jump into the the mire of leftist PR tactics while I agree that the left should be called out uh, for their blatant and unwavering hypocrisy for what they did to Megyn Kelly and treating Trudeau and Ralph Northam with kid gloves. I believe that we should not attack Trudeau and look at the the, the totality of the circumstances. While I don't agree with many of Trudeau's policies, the man does not deserve to be destroyed for for doing something ignorant and stupid. This is the best tactic and uh, we should not engage in leftist attack strategies. Just wanted to give my thoughts. Well, this is what we've been talking about over the last few days, and and, and I agree. It is, uh, I've been wrestling with this as well. What do we do? Uh, we we accuse the left of having a double standard. We don't want to ourselves have a double standard. So if we say, in principle, that we don't think that people should be destroyed or fired or canceled over dumb things they said or did 20 years ago or 30 years ago or whatever... Um, then how can we all of a sudden abandon that argument when it's a leftist who's got themselves into trouble? And that's where I tried to thread the needle yesterday. And, and, and the way that I kind of, kind of look at this is, yeah, we don't want to be disingenuous. So we don't, when it comes to the Trudeau blackface thing, I think any, any rational, especially any conservative, we see that. And, and we know that, objectively speaking, not a big deal. It's not racist. Uh, you want to call it insensitive, go ahead. You want to call it stupid, sure. It's not racist, okay? His intention clearly was not to be racist. So we know that. And so we shouldn't be disingenuous and go around pretending that we really think it's racist. Unless we're doing it ironically as a joke, in which case, go ahead. Um, but I do think, as I said yesterday, we this from our, with, with this kind of thing, Our point should be, okay, this is not a racism scandal. This is a hypocrisy scandal. So it's the same thing with the New York Times editor who who herself has participated in cancel culture 
trying to retweeting things, calling for Shane Gillis to be fired from SNL. Then it turns out that she has all these offensive tweets uh, where she has said offensive things about gay people and people of other races and so on. Well, our response to that is not that, oh, this person is, is a horrible bigot and, 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 and all of that, but it's just, this is hypocrisy. This person is a hypocrite, clearly. Justin Trudeau is a hypocrite. And so I think there's nothing wrong with us saying, okay, you, forget about the standards we hold you to. You should hold yourself to the same standard that you hold other people to. I think that that's a perfectly fine, perfectly consistent message. That is an intellectually honest way of, 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 of approaching this from our perspective, where we are saying to these people like Justin Trudeau, hold yourself to the standard that you hold other people to. Just like the comparison I drew yesterday, I think it's an apt comparison. Think about what the left says to socially conservative Christian Republican politicians who end up in scandals where they're having affairs, Larry Craig in the bathroom soliciting gay sex. What do the left say in that case? Their message is, hey, you know, we don't think this kind of stuff's a huge deal. Uh, but you're the ones, you're the one putting yourself forward as this conservative Christian family values, Christian values, so on and so forth. Hold yourself to the same standard that, that you know, live up to your own standards. You're the ones who say that this is a horrible, evil thing. It's terrible, the collapse of, uh, of, of, of morality and everything else. So hold yourself to that. Standard. By your own standards, you should resign in disgrace. Because that's what you would expect other people to do who have done the same things. And in that case, I agree with the left. I think that's correct. Well, I think we can take that and throw that back at them here and say, well, here you go. This is your standard. We aren't the ones as conservatives. Okay. We're not the ones going around saying that everything is racist. We aren't the ones saying that if you know, somebody said, makes a joke five years ago, we should destroy them now. That's, that's not our thing. We didn't, we didn't invent that. That's not our opinion, but it is your thing. That is your philosophy. So apply it to yourself. Be consistent. Um, all right, let's see. This is from uh, Sam says, Hi, Matt, longtime listener, big time fan. I'm well aware of your opinions on issues such as people facing FaceTiming in public, people sitting next to you on planes when other, when other seats are open, etc. I would like to know your thoughts on when you are using a urinal in a public restroom and someone comes in and decides to urinate right next to you when other urinals, urinals are available. I believe this is sociopathic behavior. Do you agree? I guess we're talking a lot about bathrooms today. I didn't plan it that way, but that's the way it's turned out. And um, yeah, Sam, I, I sociopathic, yes. Psychopathic, uh, I would advocate. I think the death penalty in those cases you could make an argument for it. That's all I'll say. I think, I think as a society, as a country, we need to have a national conversation about what do we do about the sorts of people. You got a line of urinals. You're, there's, all of them are free except for the one you're using. Someone comes in, uses the one right next to you. You could make an argument for not only criminalizing that behavior, but um, making it, you know, considering at least capital punishment in those cases. I, I don't know. We could talk more about that, but I think... Uh, there's certainly a rational argument to be made there. Thanks for the email. Finally, this is from Addison, says, uh, Dear he who must not be shaved, as a fellow lay theologian, I commend you for continuing the tradition of maintaining your beard. Anybody who attempts such deep discussions without facial hair should automatically be marked as a heretic without exception. Totally, totally agree. 
Speaking of theology, I've stumbled upon a rather unique discussion in my studies. Many years ago, somebody introduced me to a documentary titled Divided. The filmmaker, Philip Leclerc, Leclerc, L-E-C-L-E-R-C, asks a very important question. Why are the youth in our churches falling away in such terrible droves? If I'm not mistaken, I believe the current statistics range between the high 80s and low 90s. That is a staggering number, one of great concern, obviously. But his diagnosis of the illness is even more bizarre. Rather than blaming it on lack of discipleship, sugarcoating preaching, or the absence of apologetics, he more or less points the finger towards the institution of youth ministry. His argument relies on two premises. Premise one, there is no such thing as a youth pastor in the Bible. Premise two, the Bible teaches family integration, not separation in the context of worship. Conclusion, therefore, youth ministry is outside the will of God. Now, I don't want to strawman his argument, so I'll grant that maybe he doesn't hold to the first premise as strongly as the second premise. Regardless, he and several other, um, others strongly support the second premise and cite various scriptures to proof their claim. The idea is that parents have to be involved in the discipleship process or else the children will most likely fall away during high school and beyond. The more committed the parents are, the more committed the children will be. Therefore, youth ministry is not part of God's plan because of wedges, children, it wedges, uh, because of wedges children from their parents and further divides between them. Children look to youth pastors as fathers and in most cases just play games and flirt. In rare instances, the youth pastor actually disciples, but even this is dangerous because it fails to recognize the family as a God-ordained institution and robs parents of the love and devotion of their children. Church should be the place where they grow together, not separate. I obviously disagree. I'm reading this like I'm uh, Ben Shapiro over here. Uh, I, I uh, Speed reading. I obviously disagree with the first premise because many things are not specifically mentioned in the Bible that are still permissible. Also, it errs on the side of legalism when we get wrapped up in condemning things that the word does not specifically condemn. As for the second premise, I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. In one sense, I do agree that it would be ideal to encourage parents to have their children sit sit with them in church services. On the other hand, we should be so... We should, um, should we be so quick to dismiss a ministry that may indeed harvest young believers as strong, committed disciples? Uh, would this categorize under unnecessary dividing the body over trivial issues, or is this a rather a discussion that needs to take place and receive our consideration? All right, um, Addison, I think you uh, you raise a lot of interesting points, which is why I wanted to read that. Uh, sorry for for reading it so quickly. Hopefully, people could understand what you had to say. I um, I, I agree with with much of what you say. And of course, the question of why are so many people leaving the church, why are so many young people leaving, that is one of the most important questions we can be asking now as a church, as a, as a, uh, a body um, of believers in America. Uh, now, you say 80 or 90 percent leave. I don't, know, I, I don't know if it's that high. That seems a little too high. If we're looking at 80 or 90 percent of kids eventually leaving the faith, then that means the church in America is going to be extinct in 50 years, if not sooner. That's just, that is not at all sustainable. That is apocalyptic kinds of numbers. Um, I tend to think, I'd have to see where you got these numbers. I tend to think that those numbers are not exactly, you know, maybe inflated a little bit. But but anyway, the the point is, the numbers are too high. As for youth ministry, First of all, um, not all youth ministry has to remove kids from worshiping with the parents. That's not how it works in, in the Catholic Church, for example. Most Catholic churches, anyway. You, you know, you got the service, the mass, as we call it, um, and uh, and families are together, and then you have the youth ministry, which is a separate thing. And and kids will go for youth group meetings and 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 youth services, and they'll, they'll do that separate. It's a separate thing that they'll do. Oftentimes on on different days of the week, they go to youth retreats and everything else. Um, I agree that families should be together in worship, ideally. 
doesn't always work out that way, of course, but can't always work out that way. But I think ideally that's the that's what should be encouraged, having the families together. So I'm, I'm in agreement there with that argument. I also agree that youth ministers or youth ministries in general can sometimes be, frankly, just BS, uh, a waste of time that can be very clicky, very, I suppose I would, the word is worldly that we would use. Not all the time, certainly, but they can tend that way. And so that's something that you got to look out for. I remember w- when I was in, in high school and um, a, a few, you know, my, my parents were encouraging me to get involved in youth activities at the church. And uh, I made a few attempts and I just was, I was turned off by it because it just seemed like it was, like I said, very clicky, which I think, which from talking to other people, that's a big problem in youth, in, in youth groups and youth ministries at churches and in churches in general, you know, frankly. Um, and, but on, on top of that, it just, to me, it seemed like what's, I don't know, everyone's just kind of hanging out, which is like, fine, I guess, if you want to hang out, I, who doesn't like hanging out? But it, it, I, I, there should be probably be more going on here than that. Um, but actually, as I was thinking about your email, what I would like to do, I want to put all that aside for a minute and address this question of why so many kids, so many young adults, as they grow up, end up leaving. Because it's a very high number, as we said. It's a big problem. It's something that we need to think seriously about. And uh, I don't think there's one answer, but I, I would like to suggest an answer, one of the answers. I think one of the important answers I would like to suggest. I think one of the reasons why a lot of people end up leaving the church, Christianity, faith, is YouTube. Um, and the internet more generally. This is, th- th- we would make a mistake to, to, to discount this factor. Now, I don't mean that YouTube and the internet are, are the devil, though, I mean, who knows? You could maybe argue that. But what, what, what I really mean is that at a certain point, people, Christians, a lot of them, start to ask difficult questions about their faith, about their belief system, um, about their, their history as a, as a religion, uh, about their theology, their, their books. You know, People start to wonder. They start to question. They start to notice things as they grow older that they didn't notice before when they were kids. Um, they start to do their own research. Okay. And, and they think, uh, you know, oh, geez, well, the Genesis creation account is, is pretty strange uh, when, you, when you look at it, especially considering what we know about, about science. And, and why are there two creation accounts that seem to conflict? And what's going on? What is going on with this Noah's Ark story? What really is happening here? And, and, and why is it so similar to other stories like the Epic of Gilgamesh and that flood story? What, what's going on with the Exodus? So, you know, why isn't there? The, you know, when I look it up online, I see that there's, there's hardly any archaeological evidence to support it. And, you know, why does God send bears? to maul 42 children and, and, and wait, did God really just endorse slavery explicitly in the Bible? And what's with all the wholesale slaughter in the Bible? And you know, what about the New Testament? What about the infancy narratives and the fact that it, there appear to be only two, you know, the, the two infancy narratives that, that, that seem to really contradict each other and be two completely different stories? And why don't the other two Gospels even mention uh, the, the, the virgin birth? And what's going on with the resurrection accounts? How many angels were at the tomb? And what happened afterwards? And who went to the tomb? And who left? And where did they go? And what exactly is happening here? Uh, and, uh, and wait, when were these Gospels written? And by who? And 
how do we know that? And, uh, and, and, you know, wait a second, what is with this, the whole idea of atonement? What's up with that? You know, why did God need Jesus to die to forgive us? Why couldn't he just forgive us without that? Um, and why does God allow all these horrible things to happen, diseases and everything? And, and, and uh, what about evolution? And why didn't God ever mention that? And on and on and on and on. Okay. The point is, I think people, a lot of young people at a certain point, they start to ask these questions. Okay, it's a lot of people. These are and these are good questions. These are these are good, tough, real questions. But then here's the issue: where do they go for answers? They go to YouTube. They go to the internet. Uh, they go to Google. Okay, uh, and why do they go there for answers? It's not their fault. That's that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. You've got all these questions. So you go to the internet, you, you look it up. They're forced to do that in many cases because our churches, for the most part, are not addressing these problems, are not even acknowledging them, are ignoring them, uh, are not even trying to provide answers, are not addressing these things head on. And what happens is that people start asking the questions that the churches have ignored and that their parents have never addressed and they go online, they go to YouTube, they find things out, they learn things, they notice things, they start to feel lied to. They start to say, why didn't anyone ever tell me about this? Why, why, what, wait a second. And they start to feel like things were hidden from them and their faith completely falls apart at that point. It's like a house of cards, it just tumbles down. It just, it's just, it, it, it just, it just all falls apart and you lose them. And I really believe this is what's happening in so many cases. In fact, I know that this is what's happening because I get emails from people all the time, all the time, describing exactly this kind of process. You have no idea how many emails I get describing not only exactly this story, this, this, you know, this narrative of their own life, and, you know, this is how it worked for them, but, but, but asking me a, a lot of these questions that I just rattled off. You know? um, and there, there are hundreds of others that people, people could ask related to religion. They ask me these questions. Now, why is that? Is that because I'm some sort of I'm some sort of genius theologian or scientist? No, I'm not a genius. I'm not a theologian. I'm not a scientist. I'm just a guy babbling on the internet. But that is a reflect. The fact that they have to come to me of all people to answer these questions is a reflection of the fact that the people in their lives who should be answering them or at least addressing them are not. They find me on YouTube and they say, let me talk to this guy because their pastor's not talking about it. Their priest isn't talking about it. Their parents aren't talking about it. Their religious education, you know, they went to Sunday school. They went to Christian school, Catholic school. These things were never talked about. And what I hear in emails a lot is, is sometimes they'll go and they'll, they'll try to talk to the pastor. They'll try to talk to some people in their lives and, and ask some of these questions. And what they get are platitudes. They get evasion. They, they, sometimes they'll, they'll, they'll get the distinct impression the person they're talking to has no idea, hasn't even thought about this stuff before. Um, I think it's so important for us to realize this because, you know, uh, uh, I think we need to stop looking at the problem as one of purely about, you know, shallow, self-centered millennials who, who, who want to leave Christianity so they can go and run off and sin or whatever. I think that, you know, maybe that's the case sometimes, but uh, I think we, we make a big mistake. It, now, it makes us feel better to look at it that way. We want to see it that way. Okay, we want to say that, oh, all these people leaving, I mean, they're just not as pious as I am. You know, they're just not as strong in, in their faith. They're not, as, they're not as holy as I am. That's why they leave, those wimps, those weaklings. 
When in reality, no, it, it could be in some ways the opposite. That they had the courage to start asking questions. But unfortunately, nobody was there to answer those questions. And unfortunately, they, they didn't really know where to look for the answers. Um, so I think that we need to uh, start. I, I think Christians need to be uh, trained, educated, really educated. In, in you know, and and uh, now, and we would know this too. That's, that's the other thing. When we're trying to answer the question of why do people leave the church? You know, one thing we could do is ask the people who've left. Let them tell us. Okay. Now, if you ask people, they might tell you they left because they're disenchanted with the church. They're, they had personal problems with somebody in the church. They, you know, so on and so forth. You'll, you'll hear, you'll, you will hear stories like that, yes. Um, but just as likely, they'll tell you something about some of those questions that I mentioned before, um, some of those problems. And they'll tell you that the best answers they could find for those questions were secular ones from secular sources. You know, and, and, and so what we want to do is we want to make ourselves feel better. And we want to say, oh, no, 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 that's not really why you left. No, that couldn't be it. That's not it. I'll tell you, I'll tell you why you left. Because I know, I know, I know better what's in your mind than you do. Do we have any idea how pretentious and arrogant and stupid that sounds? No, 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 it wasn't really that. No, no, that's because you wanted to sin. That's what it was. Telling you. No, 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 you don't know. No, it wasn't. Let me tell you. No, no, let me tell you why you left. Um, no, I think we need to listen. I, 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 I think maybe we could listen. Let's listen to what they're saying for a change. What ultimately needs to happen is the church needs to help to form mature Christians with a mature understanding of their own religion and their Bible. This is a big part of the problem, is that a lot of adult Christians in this country have a very immature, childish understanding of their religion and of the Bible. Um, and the problem with an immature and childish understanding is that it won't hold up to scrutiny. And also the other problem is that you, if you're a parent, if you're a leader in the church, because you have yourself a childish, immature understanding of your own faith, you are not going to be able to answer the mature intelligent questions from people who are apparently more mature than you. Um, I mean, I, I can't tell you how angry I get when I hear people that say, you know, I had these questions. I talked to my parents. I talked to my pastor. And, and, and it was like they'd never thought. These, how, how could you be an adult Christian? You never even thought about these things. What the hell is wrong with you? Use your brain. Um. I think there are a lot of there are a lot of Christians who, who still think of the Bible like a self help book. Uh, I run into this all the time. You know, Christians who, who think of the Bible as a, as a as a book of inspirational sayings. You know, um, but it's not that. There's inspirational stuff in there, but the Bible is a library of a whole bunch of different books and genres and forms and styles written over the course of thousand of a of a thousand years at least, hundreds of years, maybe a thousand years. Um, by dozens of different authors who were all trying to do different things, and none of them had any idea that they were that their writings were going to one day be compiled in a book, the book that we now call the Bible. 
Um, and we have to understand that. We have to understand what it is and, and what its many different functions are and, and were and were supposed to be, or else we're setting ourselves up for a crisis down the line when the Bible doesn't quite live up to, or rather I should say conform with our expectations. Recently, I saw somebody on Facebook, they post a picture of their Bible with a cup of coffee. And in the caption, she claimed that every morning she opens the Bible at random and, uh, and she finds her morning inspiration wherever it lands. You know, she lets the spirit guide her, opens the Bible, and, uh, and, and wherever it lands, she finds inspiration. And I read that and I thought, really? Really? Is that really what you do? Because first of all, if you really re read the Bible every morning, you aren't, you aren't posting pictures of it and posting it on Facebook, okay? Uh, but second of all, uh, because if you really open the Bible at random, if you open it at random and you stack the deck in your favor because you kind of know where the Psalms are, or you could kind of flip it maybe and try to land on Matthew chapter 5, get to the Sermon on the Mount, or you flip all the way back to the epistles, you try to get somewhere in Romans or Corinthians or something, uh, uh, you know, then, then yeah, you'll find a lot of inspiration that's very relevant to your life today. But um, if you're really opening it at random, there's a good chance you're going to land on a six-page long genealogy or a long, dense discourse on Jewish ceremonial law or dietary restrictions, or a, a description of some violent siege that took place, or a conquest that happened, or a, a prophet's lengthy denunciation of this or that group of people, or, or dozens of other things that, that would be very difficult to, at a glance, over your coffee in the morning, find inspiration from. Why is that? Because the entire Bible wasn't written to inspire 21st century Americans while they eat breakfast. Some of, the Bible, some of the Bible was written to inspire. Yes, some of it is inspirational writing. Some of it was written, written with other purposes in mind and to do other kinds of things. And so that, I, I, just, I, I point that out as an example of, of, of the, the immature, silly, frankly ridiculous you know, uh, impression that a lot of we Christians have about our own religion and our own holy book that we claim to, to read every day. I read the Bible every day. Do you? Do you really read it? Do you really study it? Do you really know what's in it? Because um, if you do, the, you know, it's just, anyway. Um, so I think, I think that's, uh, that's 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 a big part of the answer is for us to so let's begin with ourselves as Christians, um, you know, enriching our own understanding of our faith and our religion, coming to a more a, a deeper and more mature uh, understanding of it. Um, reading, you know, not just the biblical text itself, but the history around it. Um, so we can understand the context of it. It's a big part of it. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible. Some, some of those questions I rattled off, are. it's easier to, to answer those questions when you understand the context surrounding when the, these, these, these texts were written and why. You know, If you don't know any of that and you just pick it up and read it, there's a good chance you're going to walk away confused Disturbed even. So that's my thing. And, and it's got to start in the churches. I mean, pastors got to get up there and start giving substantive 
sermons addressing real questions and issues people have related to the text, related to their religion, related to just real stuff. We don't need an inspirational self-help sermon every single time. People have real questions. Answer those questions. At least acknowledge the questions. I feel very strongly about this, as you can tell, but I guess I should wrap it up. It's been about 30 minutes of me babbling about this. I, I could go on for another five hours on this subject, as you could tell, um, but we'll leave it there for now. Thanks for watching, everybody. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Uh, Godspeed. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, and The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Wall Show is produced by Robert Sterling, associate producer Alexia Garcia Del Rio, executive producer Jeremy Boring, senior producer Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. And our technical producer is Austin Stevens, edited by Donovan Fowler. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019. If you prefer facts over feelings, if you aren't offended by the brutal truth, if you can still laugh at the nuttiness filling our national news cycle, well, tune on in to The Ben Shapiro Show, where you'll get a whole lot of that and much more. We'll see you there. Mm-hmm.